Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show in which we feature the latest and greatest in fashion, tech, and luxury with the people making change happen. My name is Shereen Pacek and I'm the managing editor at Glossy. And we do have a brand new intro this week uh, made by our very own Nick Hager, who is an intern here at Glossy and Digiday. So thank you, Nick, for that awesome new intro. Um, Let us know what you think of it, by the way. This week's guest, Heidi Zach, CEO of Third Love, a bra and underwear brand that wants to make the very painful process of bra shopping easy for women. Welcome to the show, Heidi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're so happy you're here. I want to talk about why bra shopping. I mean, it's an industry that sort of everybody talks about as being really hard um, to disrupt. And then here you are trying to disrupt it. Why bras? Well, I always hated bra shopping, and I found myself in my early 30s still shopping at Victoria's Secret and was kind of embarrassed about it and started talking to other friends about it, and they agreed. Um, But if honestly, if I had known how hard it was to build and manufacture and design bras, I probably wouldn't have done it. I think a lot of entrepreneurs say the same thing. It's like, you have this great idea, you you set out to disrupt an industry, and then you get in the thick of it for the very beginning, and it's really, really hard, and you wish you hadn't decided to do it. But come out the other side now, but at the beginning, um, it was really hard um, to start. So how did you get started? Um, Because I think a lot of people, I I was talking to somebody about this just this morning, and I, I was telling them how many startups and companies there seem to be out there that are out sort of disrupting or trying to change little bits of the entire retail experience um, from menswear to uh, bespoke menswear to shoes and bras. Um, What's happening in the market right now that has made it feel so ripe for this kind of thing? Yeah, I think it's really looking ahead to where we'll be in five years from now. So across every category of apparel and consumer goods, the vast majority, if not all the growth in the next five years will come from online. So if you look at the bra market, it's a $100 billion market worldwide. But over the next five years, growing at 20% year on year, it's all from online. Mm -hmm. So companies are coming in to say, if you think about building a direct-to-consumer experience through an app, through mobile, through web, what does that look like? How do you create a better experience for somebody shopping for a certain product online and build that from the ground up? Because it's a very different mentality than a traditional brick-and-mortar brand, which is optimizing for a store experience and building product for a store experience. Building product for an online experience, both the tech product as well as the physical product, is different. And mm-hmm. it takes a different skill set and a different focus to make it really successful. And that's why I see you see that across every industry right now. But there are retailers out there who are able to do that. I mean, I think everyone's seen the writing on the wall. I mean, this isn't this isn't like this isn't news to most people in retail that online shopping is not where it needs to be in terms of an experience, but is definitely going that way in terms of growth. And you have seen retailers who are doing a good job, I think, of bringing that around. I mean, the mentality part, I think, to me is interesting. Yeah, I think they are focused on it, but it's not what they think about first. And there's a big difference, right? It's it's not e-commerce first. It's brick and mortar first, especially if you're in a public company, you're judged on comp store sales. Mm-hmm. You're judged on how, how many XYZ units you sell in your stores. And you think about that first, and then you think about online after. And so for us at Third Love, it's all about if you're going to buy a bra online, how do we help you find the right fit? How do we help you find the 
the right size? How do we make you really comfortable buying a bra online? And how do we continue that conversation with you throughout your journey as a customer? And it's very, very different than if I had, you know, a thousand stores I was thinking about too. Or like my mentality would be different, right? Just inherently. Mm. So it's a matter of attention span that they can't give their, they can't give their under, it's like having two kids and not just yeah, one kid. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, and it's have a, having everybody march in the same direction. So on a team that's very focused on one thing for us, which is, getting a woman into the right right fit and delivering her that amazing product and experience, everybody on the team thinks about that. So we're all thinking about and optimizing for the same thing. I think it's very different. The, you met, I mean, you used the word mentality. That, that was sort of the, that jumped out at me because so many people talk, right, about how, um, how slow legacy brands can be and how there's like, a lot of it comes down to, I always use this example of, you know, you go and buy something really expensive from a high fashion place and, you know, there's no such thing as same day delivery and they've never heard of such a thing, even though it's like a thousand dollar purchase, you'd think they would be able to deliver it right, right then when you wanted it. What is it? I mean, you worked in, you were at Aeropostale for yep. years. Um, so you worked inside big brands like that. What's it like on the inside? I think it's just, there's a slowness to think that a new trend is really, um, taking off and, and, the response time takes longer. So what I mean by that is, like I remember being at Aeropostale when Forever 21 was the new kid on the block Mm -hmm. and kind of bringing that to the forefront of some of the management team there saying, hey, like our customer is a teen customer. She's not just buying, you know, Aeropostale hoodies or shopping at Abercrombie or the other competition, Old Navy. She's shopping at Forever 21. She's she's into fast fashion. It's a new thing. This is, you know, 2007. Um, And like, let's pay attention to this and think about it. And and really, I don't, you know, there was a disagreement that that customer, the Arrow customer even shopped at a Forever 21. So just starting from there. But didn't you have the data showing that the well, Arrow it's hard customer to, was going there? Yeah, it's hard to get like, cross-shopping comp data, sure. but, but absolutely they were taking market share and they continued to take market share, um, as did a lot of fast fashion over the next five years. But I think it most retailers, they know what they know, and it's easier to just keep doing that than to change or to recognize that. And I think startups are changed very, are, we're very different in that we always think we're about to go out of business. So we're always looking around us saying, you know, who's there? What are they doing? Like, what's going on? Like, how are we going to continue to innovate? There's this sort of constant push to actually change that I don't think is there in a more traditional brand and company. Hmm. That's just my take. But you're not always going to be a startup. Nope. And that's that's the problem. I mean, people say, like, what what's your biggest fear? I mean, my biggest fear is that we become complacent, right? That we become big and complacent and not, you know, not moving quick enough. So we're a small team right now, but that is something I think about every day as our team grows and we onboard more and more people every week. So in in the larger brand space, you know, we've seen these these examples um, in the CPG space most recently of sort of what what, what we call purchasing innovation, right? Mm-hmm. That we saw it with Unilever um, and Seventh Generation, what they did with Dollar Shave Club, rumored to be doing that with Honest Co. Um, it's clear that big brands are aware that they shouldn't become complacent, especially this like, I mean, Unilever is a giant multi-billion dollar yep. company. And then they're going after, okay, let's acquire that expertise or acquire that innovation. Why, why hasn't there been a similar push inside retail? I, you know, I, I'm not quite sure. I think the hardest thing is that you have to be able to let that other company operate pretty independently mm. to keep its core DNA and what it does differently and maintain its brand identity. And I think that's the plan, for example, for Dollar Shave Club is to really run that entity 
to leverage some of the great things about scale, but to really keep that entity separate in terms of how it functions. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see like what happens with jet.com too, right? right. Like how that kind of shakes out. But I think that's the key thing is can a bigger brand acquire another brand and let them sort of do their own thing? And maybe there's not that comfort level there. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. How does, um, I mean, I was looking at I was looking at who's invested in you guys, and I thought it was interesting. You have executives formerly from Victoria's Secret, the place you yourself were embarrassed to shop at yeah, yeah. Uh, not long ago, um, from Spanx. I mean, these are all companies that that you want to compete against. Yeah, I mean, they are former CEOs of those companies, right? So they're not there now. Um, but I do have a tremendous, tremendous amount of respect for both of them and what they've been able to build. Um, you know, Victoria's Secret really created specialty retail for for bras. I mean, they created that category, and as did Spanx. They created a whole new category. So I have a lot of respect for what they've built. And obviously, as I like to call them, the lorries, um, have been tremendous, a tremendous resource and have been really been able to, you know, help guide different strategic things that we're, we're contemplating or thinking about in the company. So it's been amazing having them there. You mentioned sort of brand building. And I think that's been interesting, especially something like Spanx or VS. I think both of them are such strong brands. Um, how hard is it to build a brand in retail? It's really hard. It's really, really hard and you have to be thoughtful about it and it has to be differentiated and authentic. It's very different than 10 years ago. You know, with social media, with with how people communicate with each other, it, um, building a brand can be take less time, but at the same time, there's more conversation. So at Third Love, we've been really, really cognizant of everything we do, every word we choose in a tagline, you know, how we, if you look at our website, for example, our models don't look at the camera. It's a very, very distinct choice we made. Tell me about that choice. So if you think about most traditional bra brands, they're marketing sex towards men to get women to buy bras, right? In essence, that's kind yes. of the cadence that, that uh, it follows. If I walk past the 86 store of Victoria's <laughs> Secret, that's, certain, that's certainly what I see. Yeah. And so what, we, what we've said is, how do we create a bra brand where I'm marketing a bra and a company to you, to, to our customer? Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but when I'm shopping for bras, I don't need the sultry glance of a female like eyeing back at me, you know, saying, I've seen teenage hey, right? boys stand outside that <laughs> store and just gawk. Because there's these like, I mean, with like 20 foot models and like they're like breast level, right? at their eyes and I've I've just seen them gawk at them and it's been amazing because then I'm embarrassed to walk in and nobody else wants to I've, I've seen that happen to them but yet they built a brand on that absolutely but I you know times are different that was 20 years ago so today you know we're really saying I I don't call ourselves a lingerie company third love is a bra and underwear company because real women wake up in the morning and they put on a bra and underwear they do not put on lingerie so we are a bra brand and when women shop for bras they want to know that that bra is going to be beautiful it's going to be comfortable it's going to work for them and it's going to work for them under their clothes so the other thing you'll see besides the fact that the models aren't staring you in the eye when you're on our website is the fact that we show women fully clothed in a dress and a white shirt to show what the bra makes the outfit look like because a woman puts on a bra to create an outfit right she doesn't put on the bra just to seduce for example yeah absolutely what was that um that seems like a no-brainer when you put it like that but yet that clearly wasn't something. What was sort of the discussion leading up to something like that? Well, what we did, we did work with an outside agency um, last year to 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 really come up with some of these core tenants. But what we did is we went out to our customers and we did a survey and we said, what do you love about Third Love? What do you love about the product? What do you love about the company? And we really got some of those core tenants um, 
about feeling very confident, you know, feeling very comfortable, feeling educated. Women really liked that we made them feel educated and good about making that purchase online. So we took sort of those words we heard from our customers and fed that back in to say, how do we create a brand that represents these things that our customers are telling us we are? How do we do that outward facing to them? And that's how it came about. What was it like um, making this pitch to potential investors? Um, you know, it, it is mostly men. I think a lot of times for the good meetings, men had done their research in advance. So they had talked to their wives, girlfriends, daughters, et cetera, about bra shopping, you know, the, 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 nuance, the, the nuances of it and how much they disliked it or didn't, didn't like that, you know, the normal process. And so some of them were prepared, but I think generally VCs are looking for big opportunities, you know, so I don't think that it wasn't as hard of a pitch as you'd think, especially because it was a little crazy. We were like, oh, we have this app that women can size themselves. Sounds crazy. Check the box there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that it's more about the big ideas than it was the category necessarily. Do you think that um, what's the market like right now for, again, we're going back to how many retail startups there seem to be. I mean, you've seen and you've seen some big valuations. I mean, Stitch Fix is a great example. Um, 300 million valuation. A few, I think I'd argue that a few years ago, sort of retail startups wasn't, or retail tech, it's a terrible concept. It's a terrible word, but retail tech was this, was something that not a lot of investors or VCs were really so hot about. There were a lot of different things happening. Um, How would you describe kind of investment right now in retail tech? I mean, I think there's always going to be different firms that are more or less interested in the space as a whole. But again, with most of the growth coming from online, that's a huge focus for, mm-hmm. for most firms. It's it's everything digital, right? And I think it's also about building a profitable business. And so, you know, for us, we are almost profitable and that's hugely important to investors these days. It's not just about how many customers you have. It's what is your business model look like? What does your P&L look like? Like, is this a long-term sustainable company that can grow into a billion-dollar brand mm-hmm. and be profitable? Yeah, right. So it's it's that's important. Um, when I mean, when you were at Aeropostale, sort of coming in, you know, from sort of the big legacy brand and moving into this space, what have you kind of f- found out that surprises you about the challenges in retail? <laughs> Um, I think manufacturing was a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. And it's a complete old school boys network. Okay. Um, How so? Meaning most factory owners are male. Most heads of production at any retailer, for the most part, are male. And there's sort of this boys club as Mm -hmm. there is in in the VC landscape too. And getting in into that network and trying to work with the best manufacturers was really hard and really painful because they're the best factories are at capacity. They don't need new clients and they don't certainly need small clients, right? So that was hard. Well, because you're not putting in orders for millions of units right especially at the beginning when you're like come on let's you know come on this journey with me like we're going to be small Mm -hmm. at the beginning and then we're going to grow really quickly I mean they hear that pitch a lot I'm sure so that was hard how did you how did you get over that uh well I mean face-to-face meetings I mean flying to China spending a lot of time there meeting a lot of people lots of dinners karaoke (laughs) I mean you name it right it's it's really about getting to know you know the factory owner um and getting to know them on a personal level and establishing that relationship and getting them to understand the vision for the company and how we were very different from any other startup in this space too. So, Do you think that's something that a lot of people are kind of coming up against now? 
It depends on the category. So there is a lot, there is certain categories that you can manufacture in the US. So it's going to be more expensive, but it's easier, right? You can manufacture in LA and New York for a good amount of things. Bras, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a very, very nuanced category that's more difficult. It's a very complicated garment. A bra has 30 plus components and you need the most skilled labor to produce it. And you need the whole supply chain to to bring all the inputs in to create the bra. When you talk about factories, I think the thing that comes to mind for me is um, really sort of the increased push towards being the transparent retailer. Um, and sometimes I feel like there's a lot there's a lot of startups now who are sort of using that as the brand building key. Um, how sort of sustainable do you think sort of long-term strategically is sort of that D2C, we're very transparent and that's our selling point model. Um, do you think it can scale to becoming sort of that billion dollar brand? I do. I mean, I think that it is compelling. And again, it goes back to the where we are today. People, everyone deserves more. Consumers want more interaction, want to understand where things are manufactured. Um, but I think it's just really important to have something that, that aligns with who you are as a brand. So that's what's most important. Again, it's not like you just wake up one day and say, I'm creating this company and it's going to do this because it's cool and that's what other mm-hmm. people are doing. So so for us at Third Love, how we give back is through bra donations. So we're mm-hmm. the largest donator of bras in America. Um, and so we donate, we've donated hundreds of thousands of bras to different female organizations. And for us, that aligns very much with, again, our brand values and who we are. Mm-hmm. And that's what we focus on. So... Do you think direct-to-consumer can scale, though? I mean, everyone talks about how you can take that middleman out and it'll be fine, but I'd argue that you sort of always end up, once you get to a certain point or in size, that, no, you're going to start needing those stores. You're going to start needing those retailers in the middle between you and your your customer. Um, It depends. I, I, it really, really does. But I noticed a theme in your answers. I mean, everybody's different, right? Yeah. Uh, so I can speak to us. I mean, for us, for sure, at some point, retail presence will be something that we do. Right now, we do sell through Bloomingdale's. So we we do partner with Bloomingdale's and um, are launching with Nordstrom. So we do have that going on, but the vast majority of our sales is still direct to consumer. So I think it's about having the right mix that works for your business. Um, but retail is certainly not dead, nor will it be dead anytime soon. And by that, I mean brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you ever open a brick and mortar store? Absolutely. At some point. Not not in the near future. Too much to take on right now. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Um, I want to talk a little bit about sort of fashion marketing. Yeah. Um, how, how much has it changed in the last few years? Was, um, I know sort of the role of a marketer itself inside big brands. And I think big fashion brands used to have, high or low, used to have this idea that marketing equaled PR. Mm-hmm. And that's what you did. You, you, know, you sent things to people that were important who'd be photographed with them, and that would be the end of it. Um, the role of the marketer has changed, right? Absolutely. I mean, and marketing, marketing means so much today, right? And I always say that when, when I'm interviewing people, I mean, marketing is everything from customer acquisition. So a dollar in means a dollar spent means a dollar in and and that, that relationship, um, marketing still does mean PR and some of the softer touch points. Marketing means content these days, right? Creating really compelling content that you share with your community and then they share outward. So marketing is much more robust today than it's ever been. And it's, it's my favorite. Is robust code word for harder too? Cause that's harder. Um, 
That's a lot more say, work. It's, I would say you need more marketers on your team to focus on different things. But I think, um, you know, marketing used to be, again, this really soft term where it's like our marketing budget is, you know, a million dollars and we put up a billboard and we throw up an ad on TV and we don't measure anything and we're building a brand. Mm-hmm. And that's not how you know, how we think about it, right, today. It's it's really about acquiring new customers and measuring. Um, and PR is still important, but for us, our press has come out of the content that we've created or things that we've done that have been important to us. So like our Breast Shape Dictionary or Calvin Klein, like we were talking about earlier on the billboard there, that created press around something that we really believed in. Mm-hmm. So again, it goes back to being authentic to who you are as a company and, and who you, what you, what values you stand for. Well, let's talk about Calvin Klein. I think most people, when they look up Third Love, actually see sort of the movement that you started about this billboard. Um, Can you sort of tell us about it and sort of what spurred that on? Yeah, so one of our team members had seen a billboard down here close to where where we're at in... um, in Soho and texted it to me and was like, this is crazy. Like, and what look was at this. Billboard? So half of the, um, the ad was a Fetty Wap on one side that said, I make money in my Calvins. And he had clothes on, not his Calvins. And then um, on the other side, there was a young actress who looked like she was 14. She actually was closer to 20, I think. Um, but she said, I seduce in my Calvins. And she was in her Calvins. And I think the juxtaposition of what a man does in his underwear versus what a woman does in his, her underwear in this day and age, in 2016, I, I literally couldn't believe it. I mean, it's on the biggest billboard in, practically mm-hmm. in Manhattan, right? And a you know, really super busy intersection. So we said, this is crazy. We put together a really small camera crew that we paid, I think, two or three K all in for this. And we interviewed women on the street and men and said, just what do you think of it? And just took that piece it together. I made a statement at the front of the video and then we threw, threw it up on YouTube, put up a change.org petition and we had 100,000 views in 48 hours. What happened to the billboard? It got taken down. Calvin Klein said that it was part of their normal rotation. So they removed the ad. So yeah. that, that's an, I mean, that's sort of, it's building a brand in 2016, right? I mean, I think on one hand, it, it's authentic. It dove, dovetails nicely with your mission, which you yeah. already talked about earlier, having, for example, women clothed while wearing underwear. Right. But also it's a great bit of buzzy PR press um, that also works really nicely. How many of these opportunities are going to come by? Because that something like that is not, it's not a strategy. That's something that happened to happen at the right yeah, time for you. Um, how do you sort of come up with a marketing strategy when, you know, you don't have a huge marketing budget. You don't, you're not out there buying TV. Um, How does a startup or how does somebody in retail like you kind of make it work? I think you just have to be thoughtful and be in touch with what's going on and just take advantage of opportunities when you see them. And so we definitely scrambled to make that happen. In fact, I had I was literally had had a baby two weeks prior, so I couldn't fly to New York to do the interviews on the street, which I normally would have done. Um, so we had someone else do them here. But so I filmed the video in San Francisco. But it's really about just making that happen in the moment when you see it. And things happen all the time. There's always different things you can do. And for us, it's also about creating really compelling content internally um, at the company that helps a woman shop that is also engaging just because it is, mm-hmm. right? So um, let's talk a little bit about sort of your app because I think mobile is a big part of what you do as a business. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet people still talk about how mobile conversions are not where they are. Um, you know, there's there's people now who are finally saying, I think Boohoo is, for example, now saying that, oh, they're going to, you know, shift their focus from desktop to mobile because they realize like 70% of their visits are on mobile. Um, what are some of the biggest pain points in mobile still right now for retail? 
I think just making a really seamless shopping experience and being able to um, navigate and, and just move around really quickly, you know, and we all, we all use our mobile phones all the time and some sites are better than others. So it's like you have a moment in time to engage with someone. So it's, it's not like desktop where you can just put lots more on the page. You have to be really, really tight with like, what are we trying to explain to somebody? How are we going to do that really quickly? And mobile's hard. You have to keep testing and optimizing. And I don't think anyone, you know, Everyone can stand to do better still. I think the, inter- the most interesting about mobile is like, uh, like Amazon is what? The largest retailer of clothing in the world. And yet not a great, you know, I think most people that look at their UX or say, my God, that's not, that's nothing like what your UX or Everlane's UX or anybody wants it to be like. And yet they've cracked it. I mean, that's through sheer scale. Do you feel worried about sort of the Amazon effect? Because at the end of the day, if you're able to match a consumer expectation by giving them same day delivery, one click ordering, it doesn't really like the frills really maybe don't matter so much. Yeah, I think Amazon is the largest by volume, but not by specialty category. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, I think they would be the first to say that I don't think they create a really great branded experience. They do other things phenomenally well. And so, you know, that's, it's a key point. And if you look at who's up and competing against Amazon, it is going to be people who own their own brands are, are vertically integrated and are direct to consumer and likely don't sell their products a lot of other places. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, but I think for us, we look at Amazon and it is it is so easy, right? There's an ease there. And I think we we think about that constantly. We always look at them as a comp, right? I, yeah, absolutely. So. And, yet, and yet brands find it so hard to kind of match that ease. I mean, going back to like my $1,000 purchase, it's it, it would feel again like the most obvious thing. Make it easy and you're, and you're sold. And yet it's just the hardest thing. Yeah, I think luxury is a little bit different though. So there's like, there is some barrier there where it's like, we do it this way because we do and that's how it is, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think it depends also on price point um, to some to some extent, but. So um, we're almost out of time, but before I let you go, I want to hear about an unpopular opinion you have, something mm-hmm. you believe that most people would disagree with. Oh my gosh. So I would say an unpopular opinion would be that I think five years from now that Victoria's Secret will own less than like half the market share that they do today. And that's like a bold statement and probably unpopular, but one that I think very well could be the case. Great. Well, thank you so much, Heidi, for being on the show. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more of the Glossy Podcast.